And that was amazing to see how much uh, one can perceive if you really pay attention. And a lot of it was just so those first impressions. It's not that I'm necessarily right about all of that, but it's interesting how much people will show you and tell you about themselves if you let them, if you let it in. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. What is the name of the problem people are trying to solve? Patients usually come to us with a diagnosis, a story, uh, something that motivated them to seek us out, take time from their day, and money from their pocket as well. If you've practiced for any length of time, you've probably noticed by now that the air quotes here thing that brings people in our door might only be tangentially related to what eventually unfolds as we work together. I used to think that people were not being straight with me. Later, I realized that we often are driven by a storyline that doesn't really make a lot of sense to us. As patients, we have an idea of what's wrong with us. As practitioners, we have an idea of where our patients' difficulties stem from. And then there's the reality of the situation that unfolds if we are attentive to it. And there's the rub. How to allow ourselves to both be firmly rooted in our work and perspective, and at the same time, open enough to recognize that we might be wrong or mistaken. It's easy to allow our attention to be caught by how our patients frame their problems. When we do this, we get trapped inside the boundaries and confines that they also are trapped within. Our job is to bring a wider perspective, hopefully one that allows other possibilities to unfold. And don't underestimate the resistance you might get from your patients. Of course, they want to get better, but it can be disorienting to have healing or change arrive from a direction to which you are blind or have little experience with. Our minds love to categorize life and experience by what we already know. And so, when someone gets off your table and says, is it possible that my pain can really be gone? You'll know they are in a tender new territory. Everything in them says that it's impossible. So my question to you is, how do you help patients live into these emerging moments in life for which they have no reference experience? The name people call their problem by frames the possibilities that are open to them. How can you help your patients to see their experience in a larger context, especially when things start to change and they have no good story for how that could be possible? And I'm not talking here about giving them your version of the Chinese medicine story. That's like asking someone to believe in your religion. I'm suggesting that there's a way to take their story of the world, and if you've been listening carefully, help them to widen it a bit from their own frame of reference. All y'alls that support the podcast, a deep thank you. Your monthly or yearly support directly helps to power the technical development here at the Geological Sound and Motion Laboratory. Those of you that have made the effort to buy a postcard, write something on it with your own hand, purchase a stamp, and find a place to mail it from, you gift me with a deep sense of one person connecting tactically with another. And that is part of the fuel and inspiration that I seek to bring you with these unscripted person-to-person conversations that explore the medicine and the methods that we share. Geological also shows up in your podcast feed because of the support from LASA OMS. LASA knows that engaged and curious practitioners are the ones most likely to succeed and to be of service to their patients. And so, in addition to their support of Geological, they also sponsor webinars, bring you conferences on building your practice, 
and help to support conferences that bring you both old and new ideas on how to better serve and treat your patients. Additionally, and I think this is important, LASA helps to support state acupuncture organizations so they, in turn, can do the job of protecting and promoting our profession. It goes without saying that LASA has pretty much any pin you might want to be looking for, including the new Promax line of needles from DBC that were specially designed for the sports and orthopedic acupuncture world. I've been using these lately in my own general practice because they slide in super smooth and then with a little twist or two, you can really dial up some serious chi. Also, be sure to sign up for LASA's mailing list so you can get notices on their terrific flash sales. A couple of other housekeeping items, and then we're into a conversation about hands-on medicine. Many of you probably know there is quite an overlap between Chinese medicine and old-school osteopathy. We're going to be getting into sensory listening to the body with Josh Margulis here in just a moment. But first, I was just talking about state acupuncture associations, and I suspect when I said those words, some of you nodded in agreement, but a larger number of you probably rolled your eyes. I get it too. I'm not exactly the organization joining kind of person myself. And I think it's really important that we support our state organizations. There is a political economic world out there that you might not want to deal with directly, but there are people in our profession who are called to help protect our practice in that realm. Joining your state organization helps them to do that work. Just ask the people in states where the state organization was able to keep out dry needling. Or better yet, states where they didn't have enough support to do that. So you might not like politics, but you ignore it at your risk. So please do consider joining your state association as a kind of inexpensive practice insurance. All right, I'm off the soapbox now. As you are listening to this, we're getting ready for the Sa'am class in St. Louis, Missouri. When I was a kid watching Kung Fu, I could have never imagined there would one day be this kind of acupuncture training in the American Midwest backwater that I grew up in. Life is ridiculously surprising. And back then, I also was watching Star Trek. And while we cannot beam you here to the seminar, we can beam the seminar to you. Thanks to the efforts here at Geological Sound and Motion Labs, yep, you can join us from your living room this coming weekend, June 29th and 30th. Visit geological.com forward slash S-A-A-M dash class for the details. All right. Pull up that cup of mountain oolong or whatever you enjoy drinking when you're ready to put on your thinking cap and learn something new as we get into this conversation with Josh Markulis. Josh Margulis, welcome to Geological. Thank you. Happy to have you. Yeah, good morning. Well, it's morning for us, and who knows, people listening, what time it is. This is the great thing about a podcast. You can just tune it in whenever you want to listen. I'm down. (laughs) Yeah. So you're an acupuncturist. You're also an osteopath. I am so looking forward to talking to you about the interface of those two things. Before we get into that, I am so curious to know how you wandered in to the world of Chinese medicine. I mean, while a lot of younger people these days go right from college into Chinese medicine school because it's like not an oddball thing, for people that have gray in their hair, you know, it probably wasn't the first thing that we did. Yeah. What what brought you to this? Well, it was the first thing that I did. So Ah. I actually was an anthropology major in college and 
was looking at uh, medical systems and how people interfaced with medicine. And this was all really fun and interesting until I realized that Chinese medicine was far more interesting in reality than looking at it in the abstract from the perspective of an outsider. So I actually left uh, college to go study body work with the intention to go become an acupuncturist. I was spent some time in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, which was a great deal of fun. And, and that's where I was exposed to osteopathy ultimately, which kind of brought it all together early on. I was 19. So you started off in anthropology. You were looking at it from this theoretical sense. What was it that that sparked in you where you go, I've got to know more about this? Was there any sort of inciting incident? Was there an experience? Or was it something that just over time took your attention? I think it was ultimately the Tai Chi class I took at the time, and just experiencing the sensation of Chi and human, the concept of energy and really viscerally feeling that really, I think, took me to the the place of going, who understands this? You know, what is this thing that I'm experiencing? And really, since I was already kind of looking at this things from this abstract point of view, I said, ah, oh, looks like the Chinese have this down. And that's really what brought me to, to Chinese medicine. I really wanted to understand the meridians, how energy moved in the body and, and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Came out of an embodied sense. No wonder you also caught into osteopathy there's it seems like there's such a focus with that on on sensation and palpatory sensing absolutely i mean the practice of uh osteopathy really is a practice of of palpation and uh interaction with sort of the dynamics of life as they're happening and unfolding in real time yeah yeah well this is something about osteopathic touch that that for me is really interesting because it it truly this is not a metaphor it, it truly seems to be a way of of seeing through your hands right absolutely yeah i think the term that we mostly use these days is listening there's a few a few notable osteopaths who've really kind of put in that put that forward in the sense of really being there and being kind of consumed in the experience, if you will. Consumes not maybe not the right word, just fully there and uh it's like listening to beautiful music, you know. It seems to me when I'm working in clinic, I often have all these mental models going in my mind. What's going on with the patient? How am I diagnosing? What's going on for them? What am I gonna do? Blah 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 blah. And and because there's so much chatter in my head it's sometimes hard to really pay attention to what's happening for the patient. Now, I find, I mean, I do a little bit of, of listening with my hands, but I found too that like just listening to what people are saying without a sense of like trying to make sense of the narrative right away, just like letting the information come in and, and giving it a moment to kind mm -hmm. of gel is often useful. I mean, I, I just do that with, with like verbal when you put your hands on people, I'm, I, it's like, what are you listening for? What, what are you doing? Or are you actually spending some time not doing? What's coming in? And, and how do you turn sensory information into something that's actionable in the clinical practice? 
Yeah, that's a good that's a good set of questions. Assessment scan for me, a, pa- a patient comes in, and sometimes I don't even want to hear what's going on with them till after I've done a scan, because you know someone tells me their left knee hurts, and then all I can feel is their left knee. You know, there's really coming at it from as much of a beginner's mind each and every time and each and every moment. It's really important. So when a patient comes, I usually run them through a very quick assessment, really inspired and taken from the work of Jean-Pierre Barral, the French osteopath. And uh, so I just rest my hands on top of their head and try to feel what are they protecting? Where do they lean and what do do they just automatically try to guard? And then uh, I might check for their first rib movement, pelvic movement, and then I have them lay down and check the um, fascial tension in their limbs and how uh, fluids are moving through the uh, craniosacral system. And that's really it. It takes about a minute, minute and a half, and usually gets me a pretty good idea of kind of what, what the body's really trying to protect, because what their pain is or what their complaint is, is not necessarily the uh, most interesting place to work. So someone might say, oh, my ankle hurts. And I might go, gosh, you know, your third cervical vertebra is really twisted up or, oh, my shoulder's hurting. Oh, your liver's kind of jammed up and maybe you're, you're getting some strain on that, on that phrenic nerve, you know, which is C345, which then puts us in the zone of, you know, rotator cuff muscles. So you can get those interesting overlaps, but the story often comes after my hands have told me where to go. Right. You listen, you listen first without even knowing why they're there. You are, you are a blank slate. As much as, as much as possible. As much as you can be. Yeah. 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 A good example is yesterday I had a patient I'd never seen before and he had a very complicated orthopedic history, you know, played a lot of football from nine to 20 or so. And, you know, just kind of as we were going, even after the intake, you know, we kept finding injuries. He's like, oh yeah, I broke my sternum, you know, and now I know. <laughs> I didn't know that. He hadn't told me about that particular injury, but that was a place that I was really drawn to early in the session, you know, and was really relevant, I think, to what was going on with him. And, you know, his body stores the the story, really. It's all there. Yeah. Well, you know, this is I mean, this is built into Chinese medicine. We know, you know, even if you've only studied a little bit, we know that where the problem is and where the complaint that brings people in is located might be two really different things. Absolutely. Yeah. Acupuncture theory and osteopathy theory are very similar in my mind in that you're really looking at both the local manifestation and the global pattern which sort of brought it to be Mm -hmm. and the trick is just learning where you can kind of like flick a little domino and set the chain reaction that makes for big change down the line absolutely i mean this is i think one of the funnest things about acupuncture you know and we all love those stories of that one or two needle treatment oh yeah that that utterly transforms someone yeah We've, we all shoot for those every time, don't we? <laughs> well, it's not a bad goal to have, right? Yeah. To be able to, to catch something in such a way that with a minimal amount of effort, the system will just take care of itself. Absolutely. Yeah. You're sounding like an osteopath now. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I... <laughs> I'm an acupuncturist. Yeah, no, it's very similar. Very, very it, similar. It's similar. And, and I've studied a little bit. I've done some of the engaging vitality work, mm-hmm. which, which, which teaches some of this. And, and I have so many questions about it because, I mean, this touch is so subtle. One of the big questions I often have, and I still deal with, and, and I suspect anyone out there listening who's done any kind of uh, training especially with cranial sorts of touch, is how do I know when I'm actually feeling something and how do I know when I'm just making stuff up in my mind? How do you differentiate between sensing and thinking you're sensing? Does that make, does that question make sense? Yeah, I think that's the, I think that kind of lies at the heart of one of the big clinical challenges you know when you uh, I like to think of the analogy of like wine tasters you know there's those wine tasters who can sit down and say oh yeah this is clearly like a western European wine must have been a cold year I'm thinking maybe more Germany short growing season da 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 da." you know they can tell you like yeah and they can narrow it down and you know personally I taste wine and I go yeah sweet good, bad, you know, I, but I'm still perceiving all of the things. I just don't know how to pull them apart. So at the beginning, when you start touching, there's a lot of imaginative, there's a lot of room for the imagination to kind of set in. But as you gain uh, clinical experience and you touch a lot of bodies and you start getting feedback, you know, um, you start to really try, trust your touch in a different different way. One of my teachers told me, Dr. Sanit, he says, I spend zero minutes a day arguing with Steve Sanit. And I think, <laughs> and I thought that was a really good way to think about it. You know, we're not doing brain surgery here, really, in the sense that if you, if you miss, it's not like your patient's head explodes or anything. You really just wasted a couple minutes and you gain some experience and you realize maybe that's not a path to walk down. Similarly with acupuncture, if you're practicing safely, you know, you just wasted a little time and maybe a little of your patient's confidence, you know, for a minute or two, you know, if you, if you try a point that's not gonna have the kind of effect that you're looking for. Does that speak to your question? Well, I, it, I think it speaks to a big question that probably all practitioners have, especially as we're getting started in practice or we're trying to learn something new, and that is how, how to know to trust ourselves. What, what in ourselves is trustworthy? What to pay attention to? Well, that's a much larger conversation. <laughs> well, yeah, but, but, but it really comes into our clinical work, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, we're doing subjective assessment, you know, to a great extent. Pulse. I mean, you know, it's it's very, very subjective who your teachers are, your own experiences, and so on. Uh, and osteopathic palpation is very similar, you know, who your teachers are, what your lineage is, who the people that you have worked with, you know, had the pleasure and honor to work with. Uh, you know, if you work with kids, you're going to develop a different kind of touch than if you're working with athletes, you know, and, you know, the osteopaths, you know, there's, I have a colleague here in town who does the most rough and tumble myofascial release you could have ever imagine, you know, and, you know, there's the continuum to the biodynamic osteopaths 
around here who, you know, barely touch. You barely even realize anything's happening except for you take a nap and you wake up feeling better somehow. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's a real, real range. But I think, you know, knowing that there are really smart people who came before and have shared roads to look down, paths to look down, and then start with those. Well, tell us a little bit about the path that you look down. In terms of a clinical path? Or? In, yeah, in terms of, of how that informs your clinical work. Yeah. So, you know, the, the work continues to evolve. So now I mostly really look at just being with people as much as possible in the present moment and to help them come further into that moment and realize that there's opportunities to change and there's an opportunity for change. Um, I think a lot of people come uh, to my clinic feeling kind of discouraged. I, I deal with mostly really chronic stuff. I'm not doing acute orthopedic stuff most of the time, sometimes, but not not usually. So to just even settle down and say, like, let's look and see what's right and what can be even more right. You know, the the founder of osteopathy, A.T. Still, said, you know, in about 1890, the object of the doctor is to find health. Anyone can feel find disease or any fool can find disease, something to that extent. It's a great quote, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing perspective. Yeah, and, and osteopathic manipulation in the last 70 years, 60, 70 years, has been moving more towards recognizing the health rather than thinking so much about what's biomechanically, you know, quote unquote, out, you know, like this vertebra is rotated this way and that this, uh, you know, maybe the liver's jammed up in this corner, or what, what, whatever. So it's more like, okay, what, what of these are adaptations? What are, what of these kinds of mechanical restrictions are really more just throwing off the nervous system? and not allowing for normal function. And so how can you prioritize how to like unlock that health? And that's kind of the perspective I've been really looking at more and more these years. You know, earlier in my career, I did more, you know, trigger point release and deep tissue and real intense like tenderness work and even high velocity manipulation. And now I don't do those things probably 95, 98% of the time. Um, I find I don't need to. And I find the results last longer when I'm not doing those things. So I've kind of moved from trigger points as like a pathological state to more like a cry for help from the body. And I use them more as an analogy being taking the pulse in Chinese medicine. Mm -hmm. It's a marker. Yeah. What muscles are overloading? How is it working together? How's the system? How integrated is the system? And so a lot of times, you know, I might work somewhere else and the trigger point in the trapezius or levator scapula gone. Exactly. Like yeah. you put a needle and in the pulse just shifts from wiry to, you know, just kind of nice and easy. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, I, I hear you speak about the health and I've heard osteopaths talk about the health, capital H health. And it seems to me that they're talking about the very same thing that in Chinese medicine, we talk about the Zheng Qi, right? The upright Qi, the mm-hmm. part of us that is healthy, that's always healthy, 
that's always available for at least as long as we're in this body. Very much so. And has that capacity to, if it's unblocked or unlocked, it just goes to work. Yeah. Sutherland, the founder of cranial osteopathy, talks about the unerring potency of the of the tides, of the fluids mm. in the body, uh, how if you can interface with the fluids and activate them or help them activate more, then they'll just go and fix whatever needs to be fixed. You don't, as a clinician, need to do that work. That's not the work. So when osteopaths are talking about the fluids like this, when I hear you talk about the fluids, could this be translated into, for a Chinese medicine practitioner, the qi? Or are we talking about something different? I think the terminology is a little different. However, I think they're looking at the same phenomena. You know, there's very much, like in cranial osteopathy, sometimes the fluids can really mean like very much the jing, you know, the jing, the essence, for example. So like working with kids with developmental delays, early fusion in their skull, poor growth, poor development. All those things are very much kidney jing related. On the other hand, working with like uh, an adult with some kind of uh, illness, sometimes it's more chi, or maybe it is even the 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 yin or or, or jin ye that you you're working with. But the idea is that uh, very much like the zheng chi, like you like you mentioned, that if you can support the upright, the body will heal itself. There's nothing more to do, really. You know, as we're having this conversation, it occurs to me that hydraulics are really powerful. I'm thinking about like, you know, a, a pump that you could use to raise your car. Yeah. Right? I mean, hydraulics are like super, especially in a closed system, super, super powerful. So when you're talking about fluids from the osteopathic perspective, are we talking literally about hydraulics and, and, and how things push or pull or, or regulate things? Yeah, it depends kind of on which maybe school of osteopathy. Osteopathy is kind of broad in the sense of Chinese medicine or Asian medicine and that, you know, you can get 20 people in a room and have 20 totally different ideas how to use the same points, you know, even having all read the same books and having the, their similar roots. So, that can be very much like uh, very much like lymphatic movement and movement through the uh, different diaphragms, uh, like the respiratory diaphragm or the thoracic uh, inlet outlet and so on, and, and moving the fluids through the cavities. It can be very much uh, working with the uh, pressure within the craniosacral system, within the dura, which you know, changing the ability of the brain and spinal cord to attain or gain nutrients and get rid of wastes uh, can be quite, quite profound. Or you can look at the work of Jean-Pierre Barral, where you can get down to manipulating every single artery in the body, or there's a lot of lymphatic work out there. And it's really an expanding area, all mediated by fascia, ultimately. And that kind of is the kind of core of modern osteopathy is moving more and more towards understanding the fascia and all the nervous and fluid things that are happening there. Right. I was talking to someone, one of my patients the other day about the fascia because it, it, it's kind of in the news. I mean, people are hearing about it, fascia connective tissue. And I can't remember which one of us said it, uh, but the term came up and said, yeah, it's like the internet of the body. Yeah. Right. It's this information network that connects everything. 
Yeah. I mean, back when I did anatomy, it was the stuff you threw away and kind of knew it was, you knew it did something, but it wasn't that important. And now you're starting to realize that, you know, the interconnection communication in the body is much more dynamic than we ever thought which is, I think, why the application of a needle, you know, far, far from the site of the disorder or pain or, or, or uh, small amounts of pressure, adding small amounts of pressure into the system can have such huge effects throughout the whole system. If you can get to the right place, if you can listen to the fascia, if you can find, find where that, I, I kind of like the term uh, therapeutic leverage is. Mm kind of what I've been thinking about, you know, that place where just with a very small effort, you can have a huge effect through the system. Exactly. Well, I mean, as acupuncturists, our job so often is finding the right point, right? It's like, where is that point of influence that will make the other dominoes fall? And then the next question becomes, how do I interact with that point? Yeah. You have to give the body information it can use. And I like that's, that. I like that term, information it can use. Yeah. So, you know, you can a- approach things a couple different ways, right? You can uh, come at it like, okay, hey, body, you've got this balance imbalance. You're trying to compensate over here. Let me like give you a hand over here and kind of help you and go the same direction you're trying to go. Or you can kind of come at it and say like, hey, let's try to go this way gently, or you can do it more forcefully, you know, and you have a range of possibilities. You know, sometimes someone's levator scapula is in such, such spasm. I mean, I I find that often the gentle stuff's not enough. He's got to get a needle in there and, and, and stim it up, even though to my mind, it's a little like uh, slapping a crying kid in the sense that the Muscle is trying to do you a favor, usually. It's just overloaded at that time. But sometimes you kind of got to shake it. That scene in Airplane, that movie comes to mind where they're waiting in line to stop the woman who's crying. Let me have a turn. And they slap her one after another. Remember that? <laughs> I remember hearing about the movie, but I actually never saw it. Oh, wow. <laughs> Maybe I should go watch it. That was like from the 80s or something, right? Oh, uh, yeah. I tried to watch it with a German friend once. He just didn't get it at all because it, <laughs> ba- it was all based on pop culture from the 70s and 80s in the U.S. Yeah, yeah okay. I'll, I'll have to put it on and watch it with the 14-year-old niece. I'm sure she'll enjoy that. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. I want to come back to something that you said earlier about putting your hands on people and getting a sense of what are they protecting. That's kind of the key to how I work these days. If you stress the body lightly enough, it'll show you what uh, it's trying to protect. So it's, it's, a, it's like asking a, a gentle question or just looking someone in the eyes and connecting with them for a moment to, to make an analogy and just saying like, hey, what's up? And that might be a stressful question to them. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm thinking, I, I had this happen the other day. Uh, a friend of mine from Seattle long ago was here in St. Louis and came by to say hello, but also needed a treatment. And uh, I remember her looking me in the eye and, and going, how are you? And that's very different than someone just walking in and going, hey, how you doing? Right? She like looked me in the eye, like looked me in the eye. How are you? And it was a whole different thing. 
Absolutely. So the trick there is to not get in there and not weird people out because sometimes if you miss, if you if you give too much eyeball, you'll freak somebody out, right? So you got to kind of meet them where they are. And that's the idea. And so by compressing the head and compressing or twisting the tissues lightly, I'm trying to get in that place where the they can just go, ah, I'm really, really hurting over here. This is the thing that is kind of bothering me. And I really, you know, trust you and I can show you this thing that's, that is, you know, vulnerable. And that's where the gentleness, I think, of modern osteopathy really comes in, is, is really getting to that, that vulnerable spot. Not, we're not work, thinking on that orthopedic level. I mean, certainly I do. It's a map that I use. Like, hey, I need to make sure someone didn't rupture a tendon or, you know, really, you know, break a bone or, or has some, like, severe nerve problem that I need to have looked at and make sure they need to see a neurosurgeon. And then I put that aside and I look, okay, what is the, how, how is the body asking me for help today, this moment? And it's an ongoing unfolding uh, exploration, which will change as you pull tension off of one area, then something else might come up and then something else might come up and then something else. And when the body stops saying, Hey, help me here, then we're done. That's what we need to do for the day. This sounds so simple. And, and yet, I know for myself, it, it's very easy when I get a hold of something, I go, oh, it's this. Now the rest of the mind kicks in. I got a diagnosis. I do this. I do that. It's easy in that moment to stop paying attention to what the next thing is because I got this thing. How do you train your mind for this? Do you meditate? Is, this, is it because you've been doing this work for so long? Is it the teachers that you've had? How... Yeah can we continually stay open to our experience even as we're in there and, and interacting with the system and change is happening as we work? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's a challenge in my practice too. I mean, I want to just go, oh, your knee hurts. Let me really look at your knee. Let me get my microscope out. We're going to find the exact little tiny nerve that's cranky in your knee. It's an ongoing challenge. Um, but I think the, you know, kind of the Zen maxim of, you know, beginner's mind is just really always starting over and always trusting your hands, you know? So what I try to do is, okay, I feel something and I go back and feel, I use one of my parameters, you know, at the beginning I do the, uh, the standing assessment, then I do the torsion traction through the limbs. Then I do a craniosacral. Maybe I check the visceral, visceral movement, and then I'll come back to one or more of those and just see if there's a different pull. Sometimes I can feel from where I am what the next step is. It's the body will say, now that you got that C3 vertebra moving a little better, I really want you to look down over at the left side of my diaphragm. There's something over here. You know, Why don't you poke around over here? And then I roll over and play around until I find something that's interesting. And then work that for a little while and then let that come back. And then I might come back to my parameters again and then bounce back, back and forth. But I'm often in a flow state, you know, through my work day. I find that my, I don't really get stressed at work because I'm basically in a meditative state for 
at least half of every session, if not more. I, I love you just use the term playing around, right? I play around. I like turn them over. I play around. And I, you know, it's easy to hear that and go, oh, you're not taking it seriously. But there's also the way of listening to it as, yeah, you're inquisitive. You're, I mean, if you've ever watched kids play, they're totally attentive and in the moment to what they're doing. Kids are working really hard. All that play is really training your brain in a big, big way. And I think there's no better way to get experience than to get experience. And the way you get <laughs> there's no better way to get experience and get experience. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna quote you on that. Yeah, yeah, you can have that one. Uh, you have to actually, in, in my mind, be inquisitive all the time and be a, a healthy skeptic. You know, you need to go. Okay, I'm experiencing this thing. What's there? It's just simple science, right? You know, you have a hypothesis. I feel like there's this tension down coming from the knee, even though I'm way up here on the neck. Or, all right, let me go look at that knee. Well. Maybe you don't. Maybe it's not at the knee. Maybe it's a little higher. Maybe it's a little lower. But you got in the ballpark, you know. And then you go, okay, now I know what that feels like a little bit. And then the next time there's some similar pull, you can you can kind of go from there. It's it's how it's really how I approach the, the clinic. It's always playing around, you know. And, and it's fun adventure for me. Like if you tell me if someone comes to me and they say, "Oh gosh, you know, my knee hurts." I'm not going to go, well, it's probably your right kidney. I have no idea what's going to come up right. until, until I get to work. And I really strive to maintain that. And it's fun when it, you know, I go, okay, oh, looks like your right kidney. And I do a tiny little manipulation on the kidney and their knee pain changes by 60 70%. Then I go, wow, that's a data point for me. And that's the playing around. I just sort of file that in my, in my thing like, okay. I can trust my hands in this different way now. And over the years, I trust my hands more and more and more and more. And the weirder things they tell me, I trust. Whereas before, I'd be like, I'm going to test the, the laxity of this ligament. And I'm going you know, to test the strength of this muscle. And I'm going to do this very kind of objective orthopedic type tests. And now I do that stuff more just just for my chart notes. You know, if they had an accident, I need to write that down. But for me, it's not often not that interesting. It's easy, I think, when we have something weird come up and we follow it and it, and it pans out. Right? There's something very satisfying about that. Right? I mean, we feel like we're competent. It's like, oh, I'm getting this. I understand. What do you do in those moments where you follow something and you just hit a dead end? How do you keep yourself on track and, and not like go off the rails of, oh God, what, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. So I just change models, you know? So if, I, if I've been doing the woo-woo osteopathy thing and kind of just feeling around and I'm not getting results, I'll step back and just and say, okay, either I need to assess what I'm doing here and like try to clear my brain and do this again and come at it from a fresh perspective or I'll come and say, look, I'm just going to do another ortho exam and I'm going to treat the trigger points or I'm going to just go more like mechanical because sometimes that's the, the best place. You know, the, the trick is for me is to try to interface at the best level for that patient, that particular day, that particular time, that particular condition. 
very much Chinese medicine type of type of approach. And so sometimes I miss the right level. It's like you're, you know, the problems in the in the sinew channels, and you're deep. You're at the deep divergent channels. You know, you're you might get some effect, but it's not the place where you're going to have that uh, that shift that you really want to see or expect to see. So then, you know, I had a patient. You know, I treated her lightly a couple times, and we we would get these nice results on the table, but it just didn't hold in the way that either of us would like to see. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I said, look, roll over and I needled, you know, the Huato Jaji from L4 to S1 and, and got under her sacroiliac joint with an inch and a half, two inch needle and, you know, did all this kind of orthopedic needling. Then we came back and we we're able to do that gentle work because there was just such a big interference to her nervous system that we couldn't, it just couldn't work for her at that moment. Other people I, I've had great success with. It's not not to say that it's a, a universal thing. It's just at that moment, that was the appropriate way to treat her. So I had to step out of my preference, which is to be gentle and in this flow state and go, you know, hey, we're going to do a little tough love. Let's see what happens. And then let's see. Oh, great. Now we got your lumbar spine to feel better. Now we can do this release this gentle release the psoas will stay released and the hip flexors and the we can bring gluteus medius strength on and all those sort of target goals but it's playing you know if i if i play in the wrong game i just need to change change it up change the game yeah change it to a different game i remember when i was in acupuncture school one of my classmates uh, did a treatment on someone came into the supervision room and and said something to the effect of uh, i really like the treatment that i did for the patient and I remember the supervisor saying to, her, to this person, I hope it was helpful for the patient as well. Yeah, a- <laughs> <laughs> and, and, I, and I was like sitting there on the other side of the room going, wow, I just got a lesson without having to be like in the direct line of fire. Yeah. <laughs> but it's so, it's so true. We've got what we love to do. I like this thing, yeah. but it may not be what the patient needs at that moment. Yeah. I think that's a key thing to uh, physical medicine and physical medicine, meaning acupuncture, osteopathy, chiropractic, physical therapy, you know, all those things really, how do you, how do you match your patient in where they're at? You know, the analogy I like to use, you know, sometimes uh, it feels like some treatments are putting ice on a campfire, you know, it'll, (laughs) it'll, it'll put the fire out, but it makes a lot of smoke. You know, the water, just plain water works better. You know, just, you don't have to pull out the biggest, baddest tool just cause you can, and you don't have to depend on, you know, the most subtle tool that sometimes, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, the grand Canyon was made by water, but that might take a really long time to get from here to there. So having that clinical flexibility, you know, like, uh, you know, I'm like, okay, the patient's in pain, you know, and I'm doing this like woo-woo gentle stuff that, you know, I think will really help them, but I can put a couple ear needles in and, you know, their pain will shift. You know, I can do some distal acupuncture at the same time and their pain will shift. And that gets the patient on board. And sometimes that's enough to really kick the healing process into it. They're like, hey, this guy's paying attention to me. He's listening. 
to what I have to say and that, you know, Hey, my ankle hurts. You know, that guy like took a minute and stuck a couple needles in my ankle and cranked up the electric juice, you know, that I, he, he means it, you know, we're going to get better. Yeah. It, the, the approach that we take and how it connects with the story and narrative of what a patient is expecting, I suspect has something to do with it as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I can think of, of some patients I've had, I, I work really well with, and one of their friends comes in and this friend has a completely different personality. I cannot work with them the way that I worked with the person who referred them because it just, you know, it would be like one of us is speaking German and the other one is speaking Swahili. You know, it's like, you got to speak the right, you got to speak a close enough language that you're connecting with each other. Yeah. One of my early mentors, um, you know, when I graduated from acupuncture school, I actually went and apprenticed with a chiropractor rather than another Chinese medicine practitioner. And he was amazing, amazing at getting people. We would walk into a room, and this was the main part of my training. I wasn't learning chiropractic from him. Uh, we'd walk into a room, and he'd say, hey, how you doing? And they'd say like four sentences about their sel themselves. We'd walk out of the door, him and I, and he'd say, what's going on with them? And I had to give him a physical assessment uh, emotional breakdown and they were just sitting in a chair like across the room you know 15 10 15 feet away from me and that was my training we do that four times an hour you know i just walk in he'd say what's up they'd say something vague usually and i had to go well they've got this going on and that going on and that was amazing to see how much uh one can perceive if you really pay attention and a lot of it was uh you know just so those first impressions, it's not that I'm necessarily right about all of that, but it's interesting how much people will show you and tell you about themselves if you let them, if you let it in. If you let it in. And they'll tell you right away who they are most of the time. So the trick with this is not that the information is not available. The information's there. It's us taking our filters or barriers down to it so that it can come in. I think so. Yeah. And you got to run it through different, you got to run it through different software. You know, you got to run it through the orthopedic so the software. You got to run it through the mental, emotional software. Is this person depressed? Are they sleeping? Are they, you know, do they have uh, good health habits, if you will? You got to run it through all the different things so that you can figure out how to meet them and make the most impact. You know, their goal is theoretically at least that's why they're coming to the offices to get better right in some way to improve well they, they probably want to get rid of something they don't want or they want to get something they don't have generally speaking it's, it's one of those two things and not always not always the thing that they say that they want when they come in the door oh yeah i want to lose weight but i don't want an exer exercise or change my diet what do you got for me doc can you put a staple in my ear <laughs> you know so figuring out those sort of leverage points. And that that's what I really got from my mentor that I it was a chiropractor. He I remember one time we would talk to this old older patient, a guy in his eighties. And you know, he was going through that contractile phase that that people do towards the end of his life. You know, he's starting to lose his autonomy and uh, you know, he he had stopped working in the last year or two and his daughter wanted to get rid of his desk. Ah, and that was the desk, you know, from which he had 
you know, sort of ran his empire, his business empire, his whole life, you know, and gosh, he wants to rip his heart out. It was like ripping his heart out. And that was what we, you know, there's a chiropractor. This is what we talked about. You know, this is what we talked with the guy about, because that was the place really where he, he was hurting, you know, yeah, his, his back hurt or yeah, but you know, that was really the thing that was much more important to him. So that was the conversation we had with him or my, my teacher had with him. Mm-hmm. It was really around, you know, Hey, maybe you should keep your desk, you know, like, is there room? Yes. Then keep your desk. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. Sounds like you love that desk. Yeah. It sounds like you love that desk and it make, puts meaning in your life, you know? So uh, I think finding the ways in which you can kind of enhance that health, you know, you know it doesn't matter if the guy has the desk or not, you know, really for, for the outside world, you know, right. if, but for his inside world, it makes a huge difference. For him, it was super important, and it actually, he brightened up when he was like, oh, that's possible. That's something I can do. He had kind of gotten stuck mm. in the idea that he had to get rid of it. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm intrigued about this because we also hear of, you know, the great doctors, the masters, who basically look at someone like your teacher there, your mentor. You have a few words, maybe you take the pulse, and bang, there it is, right? You've got, you've got so much of what you need. The I, I, and I I suspect that many of us would love to have that kind of a skill or that kind of a uh, perceptual I don't know if framework is the right word but but ha- have a sensorium that can absorb that sort of information. Any suggestions for those of us that are not astute at that? You know, we got to talk to our patients for a half hour before we find out. Oh, they have a desk. How can we learn to open ourselves up to that kind of a sensing? I think really listening. Uh, we're back to that. I mean, it always comes back to listening, you know, and really paying attention to the body language, you know, everything. Your, your patient really tells you a lot right at the beginning, and uh, and it and it's you know it's a it's a hypothesis. It's not you know I don't think you know I don't presume to know somebody. I just go okay. This person is maybe a little nervous to be here or feels really comfortable or is like a total extrovert and wants to like overshare about every detail of their internal experience. And, you know, my job is to meet them there, you know, and really connect with them uh, from that, from that perspective. From that, then it's just playing around and testing your hypothesis, you know, and make it fun for yourself, you know, and it doesn't have to be wacky, you know, it's like, check the pulse, see what you notice, then use a different tool, palpate along the meridians you feel that are off on the pulse and see if there's a lot of tender spots. Well, that starts to tell you something. And then, you know, ask questions or notice how those points feel. If you're feeling like a wiry pulse in the like liver gallbladder position, do you notice tension in the channel or do you notice at one end of the channel, it's really like mushy and gushy and the other end it's tight or if gallbladder's tight and liver's soft, or if you feel like a kidney deficient pulse, do you feel the weak, you know, do you feel something? Is there bogginess in the tissues? Is there a empty feeling? You know, sometimes you like, you know, I've seen with some chronically ill people, you know, you get to the kidney three and it's like, there's a hole, there's nothing even there, you know? And 
you know, okay, it's like, is that a point that I could then maybe needle? Maybe there's not enough of a reservoir there to, to interact with. So needle it a few times, you know, build up your, your thought. Oh, that didn't work. That's a moxa patient. Now, you know, and you, and you'll, you'll say like, gosh, I'm going to send this patient home with moxa or I'm going to, you know, use herbs until I feel those points thicken up, but you just have to make your own internal database. So what you're going to experience and what I'm going to experience are different. I can share my path and I can share my thinking and I can share some ideas as can you, but what I'm going to perceive as based on my, my, uh, my biases and my experience. And so I think really just for me, it's just been, I just go and I, I treat, I test, I treat, I test, I treat, I test, I treat, I test, I treat, I test. And now that testing can be more subtle in the sense that it might not look like I ever stopped treating. I might just still be in motion on the person's body, but it's still what's happening. Treat, I test, I treat, I test, and then, you know, gain experience. And it sounds like you're not getting caught up in, I was right or I was wrong. You're just going along and being inquisitive, seeing what happens, do something, see what happens. Cause you know, it's so easy. I mean, I know from myself and, and I hear this from other people, you get caught up. It's so easy to get caught up in, Oh, I'm wrong. Oh, I don't know what I'm doing. Blah, 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 blah. Or the opposite which is equally not helpful, which is, oh, I'm right. Look how smart I am. Yeah. Both those things are not helpful. Yeah. You cut yourself off from experience. Right. You, you know, and, and, you know. And there's no better way to get experience than to get experience. There's no better way to get experience than to get experience. Yeah. But you have to be open to experience. Mm. You know, I mean, if you just go, okay, I'm looking for this kind of thing then that's what you're going to find or not find. If you open yourself up to what am I feeling? Like, what am I really feeling? Then the possibilities are much, much greater, you know, for what you might, might uh, experience. And sometimes you go, I don't know what that thing is I'm feeling. And that's an avenue for more exploration. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, oh, okay. You know, sometimes I'm working on somebody and I'm like, that's what Dr. So-and-so said about that. I could never feel that thing. You know, I just never experienced it. And then like, is that, that am I? And then let's explore. Oh, was there a point of therapeutic leverage here? Is there something, something interesting or am I just imagining it? Like you said earlier, you know, and sometimes, sometimes it's a little of both, you know? Yeah. Well, I love the, the idea of treat and test and treat and test do something and did something shift something that that was palpatory something that i was paying attention to something that i can go back to is it different i mean tongue and pulse are our classics in chinese medicine perfect right i mean they're great and and even though i often heard in my younger days when i was training that oh um tongues don't change that quickly oh boy howdy can they ever yeah you can definitely see change in moisture and vascularization. Coating takes a little longer. But I have yeah. seen coatings change dramatically. Yeah. yeah, on the table. On the table. I have to look at more tongues. I mean, I, I mean, to the point where these days I am writing down 
much more carefully what the tongue looks like because otherwise I have at times looked at a tongue and gone, I must have been dreaming when I looked at their tongue a few minutes ago. Oh, I'm going to have to explore that. I like that. I, I would encourage you to explore it because I, in tongue coating, I mean, I, seriously, I have watched thick tongue coatings go fairly thin in minutes. Wow. I know. Wow. It, 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 it blew me away. It was like, this is not supposed to be happening. Right. So again, um, it's helpful to have some markers. And for me, it's helpful to write them down because oh, yeah. otherwise it's easy to get confused or lost. I mean, I got so much chatter in my own head. If I can get a few things down on paper that I can refer back to, it's really, really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the notes are, are really important. Yeah. That's interesting about the tongue. I'll have to, I'll have to add that in. These days I do so much of my assessment just physically. I don't look at tongues a lot unless I'm going to give herbs, mm. uh, which I don't, I don't do probably half the time. So yeah. I just stay in, in, on the physical, on the, on the body. Yeah. Play around with it. See what you find. Yeah, I will. Yeah. It's, it's an option. You're welcome. Hey, you, I'm going to just move this. I'm going to divert this just a little bit because I heard you use the words divergent channels a little yeah. while ago. And divergent channels are one of those things that we covered briefly when I was in school. And yeah. I never understood them then. And I can't really say I understand much about them now. Is this, is this a piece of your practice that you do on a, on a somewhat regular basis? Have you got anything you can share with us about, about these channels? Uh, yeah, I was fortunate enough to study with uh, Dr. Bouch uh, in Petaluma who was one of the instructors for the uh, physician's acupuncture training. Oh, yeah. So I learned a lot of the quote-unquote French acupuncture from him, French energetics. Um, and the way they use the divergent channels are for really dense problems. So when, you, when there is more structural change, when there's measurable change, in the tissues you're trying to affect, then that's when you tend to use the divergent channels. So for example, like in an orthopedic thing, you might use the kidney bladder divergent channels. Uh, and usually you do the yin-yang pair at the same time. There's an opening point uh, and then a collecting point that's, that's higher. All the divergent channels go from inferior to superior. And um, you would open those up. So like for like a severe disc problem, you might use, you know, kidney 10, bladder 40, and then uh, bladder 10, which is the meeting point of those two channels. And that would be like a, an input, you know, for the lung and large intestine, it's uh, lung one and large intestine 15 up to uh, large intestine 18 on the neck. So, you know, you might run current from those electric current or something like that. They like a lot of electric, they use electricity a lot in that particular tradition. Uh, and, and, you know, you might run electricity from the kidney 10, bladder 40 up to the like Watojaji points or, you know, Baliao or, or bladder points, whatever's relevant to that particular back pain you were working with. Or, you know, you might be using it for like interstitial cystitis, for example. Oh man, that's a, that's a tough one to treat. It is. It is. So you use it for the org, you know, when there's organs. So that would be the same input, bladder 40, kidney 10, bladder 10. And then you might 
wire it up to, um, you could either do them sideline and you could try to get it to CV3, mm. or you can also get the Baliao, which are also really effective for, you know, but you got to get them deep into the. No, I mean, it sounds really deep. You're really getting in there. Yeah. So that that's kind of how I use them. So, you know, they use all the, all the levels, you know, you know, from the Jing, the Luo, and so on down to the divergent channels. Do you work much with the eight extraordinaries? Yeah, I do. Um, I use a pretty limited set of point prescriptions in my practice at, at this point. Mm. I remember one of my teachers told me uh, something to the effect of like, a young doctor knows a hundred prescriptions for one disease. An old doctor knows a hundred diseases for one prescription. It's so true. When I when I first got out of Chinese medicine school, I think I had roughly a hundred raw herbs in my clinic, and I thought, man, when I'm really good at this, I'll have three hundred. Yeah, yeah. No, I got fewer now than I did when I started. <laughs> and you get better results, probably. I, I like to think so. You you hope so. I yeah. hope so. Yeah. So I use a pretty limited uh, point. Formulary. So I do use the extraordinaries a lot. I find that they often are uh, really effective for a, a lot of conditions. And then I use, you know, I, I had the uh, good fortune of studying with uh, Richard Tan about 20 years ago, right when I got out of acupuncture school. And then I kind of combined some of his methodology with what I learned from the medical acupuncture community. And, and that that really gets me a if I've kind of narrowed it down to you know it's sort of like if it's a Shaoyangi problem I pretty much am using these set of points you know and I don't I don't think about it too much anymore and I find I get good enough results and if I need to you know if it doesn't work then I play around I figure something else out you know and that's kind of, <laughs> you know that's kind of how I do it you know but my practice now is probably. 70 80 percent manipulation and the other 20 30 acupuncture and i'm using herbs very much adjunctively at this point i'm not doing a ton of internal in, internal medicine some but but not mm -hmm. a lot well it sounds like if you can get the system to take care of itself it just takes care of itself and in fact i think it was at still who said something to the effect you'll probably know this better than i do that the body has its own pharmacy inside. It's just our job to unlock it and get it what it needs. That's a, almost exactly what he said. Yeah. Every ungent and potion is there. Something to that effect. Yeah. Right. And, you know, when you think about neurotransmitters and, you know, just, and just how things work, all these little interlocking mechanisms in the body, if there wasn't something already there, why would a drug work the way it does? Absolutely. Yeah. Every, every drug fits into, a, at least imperfectly, into a receptor we already have. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. That's how it works. It sounds like you've been doing some teaching lately. I have been, yeah. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing with that. Sure. Uh, I'm uh, teaching uh, some uh, basic uh, osteopathy for uh, mostly massage therapists and acupuncturists. The courses are kind of my favorite stuff that just really works with a focus on things that people probably aren't doing already. So, you know, I, I, one of my favorite things to tell people is, you know, two thirds of your body is in front of your spine. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, I mean, this is hilarious, right? I just love these moments where I hear something and it's like, oh, right. Yeah. Now that so, you mention it, that's obvious. How come I haven't yeah. really paid attention to that? Yeah. So you might you might surmise that many problems that manifest as a back problem or a spine problem are in front. You know, maybe not exactly two thirds, but probably a lot. Maybe more than you're giving credit to. A lot more than you're giving credit mm -hmm. to. You know, and if you look at traditional uses of like abdominal points, they often are back pain and and so on. So I'm trying to pick techniques that I find are quick, effective and can be applied either uh, in a seated position, sort of before or after a treatment, mm. you know, needle treatment, mm -hmm. or uh, with the patient supine. So a lot of the techniques are, are my favorite because I can stick needles in someone and then do them. So I'm not teaching a lot of muscle energy or things where people have to be, uh, you're kind of pretzeling people up and putting them in these you know, kind of awkward positions. A lot of it's very simple to apply to a supine patient, which lends itself to uh, clinical use by acupuncturists without adding too much time in the cl your clinical interface. Right. I mean, they're already hanging out with needles. You're just going to do a little adjunctive work there. Yeah. Or maybe more than a little adjunctive work. It might be more than a little. I mean, sometimes I, I'll put needles in and they'll sit with the needles for 20 minutes or 30 minutes and then I'll be working on them that during that time. So hopefully, uh, yeah, so I've done some teaching locally here in uh, Sonoma County and then uh, looking to kind of expand that out in the next year or two out, out uh, around the country. It's very exciting. It sounds exciting, yeah. I, it's such complimentary work. And I think there's already plenty of acupuncturists out there that know something about either massage techniques or toina or, or manipulation or osteopathy, cranial, all that kind of stuff. And we know that these things, they fit together well because they're actually not different. They're just slightly different applications of the same thing. Yeah. When I was a kid, I had the World Book Encyclopedia. Do you remember that? Oh, man. I loved the World Book Encyclopedia because... You know, in those days, we didn't have the internet. We had like five channels on TV. You had to get up and walk across the room to turn the channel at that. But I can remember having entire like Sunday afternoons. I would just like go pull out the, you know, letter P in, you know, encyclopedia. Absolutely. And just like hang with it and read and just be absolutely entranced. It was so good. Yeah. So do you remember the uh, dissected frog or the dissected human? Oh, yeah. With the transparencies. Yeah, oh, those were amazing. They're great. So the, those little acetate sheets are kind of how I, I look at the body. It's sort of like what level you're looking at is what you're seeing. And so you can literally just change your focus to a different level. And right. so different maps for different terrains. Yeah, it's like all the map is not the terrain, but the map will help you. And so he's like, okay, I'm going to look at a Chinese medicine view on this. I'm going to look at an herbal view at this problem. I'm going to look at, you know, a balance method acupuncture. I'm going to look at, you know, some of the Japanese acupuncture that I that I studied. I, you know, just flip through and just like, okay, which one has the most accurate map? You know, and I always love those acetate sheets because, you know, you stack them up. All those layers are still there, no matter what 
one you're looking at. And so how do you kind of interface with that? So <laughs> you do like to play, don't you? I love to play. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Josh, thank you so much for taking the time today. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I am looking forward to Monday morning and at least for myself, having a small interaction with patients when they first come in, especially if they're new, and then somehow giving myself a moment to digest that and, and go through what you and your mentor did, which is see what I can get before I get too much more involved with them. Yeah. I think yeah. that'll be fun. That'll be a lot of fun. Well, thank you so much for having me here, Michael. It's really been great talking with you. All right, friends, that's it for today. Remember, signing up to be a Chia Logician is another reason that I can tell my wife that I'm not cuckoo for doing this crazy podcast. And also remember that we are going to be live streaming that Sa'am class here at the end of the month. That's June 29th and June the 30th. If this is a system that you've been working with or you'd like to work with, or maybe you've had some trouble already working with it, this class will help to get you up to speed, working with it safely and effectively. As ever, thank you for listening. Drop me a postcard. Have yourself a lovely day, and I will look forward to talking with you again next week. Be sure to tune back in.